0: Matthew chapter 26. There's an author and speaker by the name of Brennan Manning. He really has a pretty amazing story about actually how he gets his name. While well, growing up, he had kind of a unique opportunity to grow up with his best friend, Ray. In fact, they did pretty much everything together went to school together. Uh, get this. When they were teenagers, they actually pooled their money together to buy a car. OK, not not a real common deal. They went on double dates together. Uh, they actually enlisted in the army together. And it was a uh, time where Korean War, everything, conflict was all heating up there. They went to boot camp together and they actually fought over in Korea together. One particular night while they were in a foxhole, uh, Brennan was kind of recalling kind of just kind of their childhood history and all the different events that took place back in Brooklyn and the fun times they've had and the events that they shared. And like, we're all in this together. Ray, on the other hand, sitting there and he's kind of taking it all in. He's eating a chocolate bar. He's listening. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's the live grenade that lands right in their foxhole. And Ray smiles at Brennan, throws down his candy bar and jumps on that grenade. He's gone. Brennan, on the other hand, he lived to survive it. Years later, Brennan found himself becoming a priest And while he was going through this process, they suggested that you should change your name to a name of a saint. And that's where he took on the name of his friend, his friend, Ray Brennan. Brennan, uh, years later, went and visited Ray's mom, Mrs. Brennan, back in New York. And while they were sitting there, Mrs. Brennan on the couch, they're having tea. Brennan asked this question. Mrs. Brennan, do you really think that Ray loved me? Do you really think he loved me? And Mrs. Brennan said, as she got up from the couch, what? And she took her finger and she said, what more would he need to do for you? And Brennan said it was kind of like an epiphany. It all kind of came together. His best friend had sacrificed his life for him, and and then he just he saw it. He understood Jesus had sacrificed and given all of himself for him. What more could he do? And you might be here and wondering, you know, does does God does God really care about me? I mean, I've, I've got all these sin issues, fearful. I am full of failure. Many times I feel distant from God and oftentimes it's because I'm not even thinking about him. I'm just living life in autopilot. And I think people come to a place where they ask, does God really care about me? Does he really love me? And if there is any question in your mind, then you're going to want to spend some real good time in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. This passage and the event that is recorded is continually celebrated by Christians time and time again, week after week, around the world. And it is the continual reminder. What more could God do to show his love for us? Now, let me just give you the uh, setting here, beginning in verse 17. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And as we've made our way through the Gospel of Matthew, now we hear are at the event of Passover. Passover was the most significant of feasts for the Jewish people. It was in their very first month, the 14th of Nisan. And it was was celebrated to commemorate an event that took place in their history, where they absolutely saw the power of God. And you'll remember what took place. God, after exercising a series of miracles and judgments upon the Egyptian gods to prove that he is the one true absolute God, Then on the final one, there was going to be the death of the firstborn. And the only way that you could prevent your firstborn from actually being killed by the angel of death is that you had to obey God and his word. You literally had to take the blood of a sacrificed lamb and put it on your lintels and on your doorposts. And if you did it, the life of the firstborn and your family be spared. If you did not, you said, I don't believe that stuff. Consequences were experienced that very night. And while they, while they uh, were there gathered together, God said, get ready, you're getting out of Egypt. I want you clothed and ready, your loins girded, I want a staff in your hand, I want your sandals on. And you were going to eat a Passover meal. It consisted of a roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and, they, and unleavened bread. And they ate it standing up because soon they were going to be leaving Egypt. And they were just waiting for God to say the word as he exercised his judgment. And that is why it's called Passover. Literally, the angel of death passed over them. And they celebrated God's faithfulness to them. They celebrated the fact that God is a covenant God and he is keeping and loyal and faithful. This Passover meal had been now celebrated for 15 years. Hundred years, it was commemorative, always bringing the people back, the people of Israel back to their history, back to their God and his faithfulness. Now, Passover on the 14th of the sun began was on that on that first day and then followed immediately following for the next seven days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, the two were actually used interchangeably. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, you even see that in our text here in verse 17. It was the first day of unleavened bread. And they asked Jesus, where do you want to eat the Passover? They were directly tied. They were used interchangeably. And that is exactly what is taking place here. Now, four days prior to Passover, what would take place is that you would take a lamb and you would go and have it. uh, You would have it actually killed uh, at the temple. And then the male would bring that back. And in this Passover feast would be celebrated. Now, let me just remind you what's taking place here. All of Israel would gather to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would surge to five times its normal size. Historians estimate at this time is about 2.5 to 3 million people would come throughout all the Roman Empire to celebrate Passover. And so the temple mount would just literally be filled with men and these lambs being sacrificed. Now, With that number of people, it was estimated there would be about a quarter of a million lambs sacrificed at Passover. The blood from that event just literally would come falling off the eastern wall. It would go down to the valley of Kidron. That brook there turned crimson red for about three days as this continually reminder that sin demanded a sacrifice. Now, there's something very unique about the different ways Jews reckoned a day. This is pretty fascinating. The Jews of Jesus Day, they had two different methods of reckoning the calendar. If you were from the north, you were from Galilee, you were and you were a Pharisee. Then you actually celebrated and recognized a day from sunrise to sunrise. If you, on the other hand, were from the south, where Jerusalem is, Judah, you were a Sadducee. If you were from the south, you actually recognized a day from sunset to sunset. And this is pretty fascinating because this is exactly what takes place. You have Jesus and his band of disciples, with the one exception of Judas, who's from the south. All the rest are from the north. They actually celebrate the Passover from sunrise to sunrise. So the 14th and the sun actually is on a Thursday for them, for the Jews living in the south in Jerusalem and the Sadducees. Why? They celebrate that Passover, that 14th and sun. That would actually be on a Friday. And so you have a situation where for two days there was like the people from the north. They were bringing their lambs. Those lambs were slaughtered. They celebrated the Passover on that Thursday night. The next day on that Friday, they brought their lambs. They celebrated their Passover that Friday night. Now, this was the first day. And so they asked Jesus, verse 18, and he said to them, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is is near. I am to keep the passover at your house with my disciples. So Jesus now says I want you to go and prepare the passover. They would be expecting this after all they had come to Jerusalem to be a part of the passover and there's things that need to be you need to get. First of all there has to be that particular lamb that has to be sacrificed. You're going to have to find herbs and they're going to be bitter. It's going to be like parsley. There is also this gathering of this chutney sauce that they're going to be using. And then there is, of course, all this unleavened bread that's going to be needed. You have Jesus. He's going to serve as the host. You've got his 12 disciples. They're going to celebrate Passover together. Jesus says, it is time. I want you to prepare. And they said that you can go into the city and you're going to find a certain man. Mark and Luke actually record an, uh, the particular identifying mark of this man. And that is that he's going to be carrying water on top of his head. He's going to have this, like, jug of water on top of his head. And you're like, big deal. All these people, millions of people, why would that stand out? And that stand out for this reason. Women were the one that carried the water around. You would very rarely, if ever, see a man doing it. And so they come in. Jesus actually tells them to look for this particular sign. And sure enough, there it is. They follow him. All of these details are being recorded because it is demonstrating that God is absolutely sovereign, that he is in control of every detail. And whether Jesus had worked this out with some arrangements with friends that had believed in him so that the Jewish aristocracy would not know where he is having Passover, or perhaps he just supernaturally orchestrates these events, we do not know other than the fact that they are ready and they are falling into place. Jesus is absolutely in control. And notice what he says. You don't want to miss this in verse 18. The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. In previous events, Jesus had said, Now is not my time. This is not the time. This is not my time. Now he says, The time is near. All of Jesus' life is pointing to this one central event in human history, his crucifixion. And now Jesus says, my time is near. And so, verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus, like a good leader... He sends his guys out there. Some are gathering wine. Some are getting the, the unleavened bread. Some are getting the parsley. Some are getting this chutney sauce. Some are gathering unleavened bread. Some are getting the, the uh, lamb that is to be roasted that night. They're all dispersed. We do not know what Jesus does this Thursday afternoon. Perhaps he spends it in total prayer and devotion and talking with God for the events that are about to transpire. So verse 20, then the Passover begins. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And this is how they ate. They would have this like large couch and kind of see it like a picture of that there. They would actually recline on this, their feet away from the table. The host, Jesus, would be at the very center, the top spots would be on his right and his left side. And this is how they would eat. This was the common way in which people would eat in that time, especially at banquets, especially like at something like at Passover, Jesus serving as the host. And this is very different than the first Passover because the first one, they were all standing at attention. Now, now they're all reclining because you know what? No escape is going to be needed. Jesus is going to take all of the punishment. Now, there is a well-established sequence to Passover. In fact, it's called the Passover Seder. That word Seder, Hebrew word, actually means order or sequence. And there was a set sequence, in fact, of how the Passover was celebrated. And this is exactly what Jesus and his disciples would do. And so it all began with a cup of wine distributed first. They would have this cup, the host would drink of it first, and he would pass it around, and each person would then take a sip of it. And then after this initial cup was passed, There would be a ceremonial washing and it was it was done to show the need for moral and spiritual cleansing. It seems about this time we're putting together the different gospel accounts that there is actually a discussion that is taking place amongst Jesus disciples. And that discussion, really more of an argument, was on who really was the greatest. Certainly, they were thinking about who was going to sit by Jesus But obviously, they wanted to be considered the most important, the greatest among them. There was something else, and John uh, records this in John chapter 13, that was glaringly omitted at this time. You see, when they came in, normally the lowest servant would wash the people's feet. I mean, obviously, you're getting dirty. There's no asphalt, right? The roads are dirty. And so the lowest servant would wash everybody's feet, all right? At least got clean feet. Hopefully you bathed sometime that week before you came. And no one had done that. And so Jesus, apparently at this time, where there'd be this ceremonial cleansing, he also then girds girds himself with a towel and he begins washing his disciples' feet and he gives them a very powerful testimony and a graphic lesson of what humility and true holiness looks like. The disciples are all taking this in. They're they're taken aback that Jesus is now washing their feet. Now, then the next event would happen in this Passover is that they would actually start eating and they they would eat. This meal is very unique and it's very symbolic. They begin eating bitter herbs, Okay, They'd be taking things like endive or parsley and they would be eating this and, and they would actually be dipping it into like a sauce and it was bitter and it had a salty taste. And the reason they ate herbs like this is because it reminded them of the bitterness of slavery. You see, this whole Passover meal is meant to be commemorative, to make them think about what life was like, what God had redeemed them from. And then they also had unleavened bread and they took this unleavened bread and they put this, they dipped it in this chutney sauce. And this chutney sauce had pomegranates, apples, dates, figs, raisins and vinegar. Okay? Now in this and I've actually taken place part in some of these type of meals just to experience what this is like. This isn't really great food in terms of like tasting, you know? But they did it because they had this this chutney sauce was meant to remind them of mortar because that's what their life was about, building bricks using mortar. And so they had this reminder. And they're 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 eating this and they're kind of moving through the Passover Seder. Then there would be the second cup of wine. There are actually four cups of wine that are drank in a in a Passover Seder. The second cup uh, would then be drank. And at this point, then they would actually start singing. Okay, and they and so what's going to happen, they're passing the cup. There would then at this time, the host would explain the significance of the Passover and Passover as it was celebrated then. Even now, as it's celebrated, the youngest child would ask four different questions. And then the the history of the Passover and its significance would then be covered so that everyone would once again be reminded. And they would actually then also sing songs. They sing from the Hallel. In the Psalms, from Psalm 113 to 118, they're called the Hallel Psalms. That is the literally, literally the word praise. OK, so you're familiar with hallelujah That is praise Yahweh. The Hallel Psalms were the praise psalms of coming out of Egypt. And so they would sing these songs and they would begin singing with Psalm 113. They probably sing two songs. And then after that would become the next event in this Passover Seder. You would have the roasted lamb being served. And so what would happen? The host, in this case, Jesus, he would again ceremonially wash and then he'd be breaking unleavened bread. He'd be passing it out to all the guys that are gathered there. And then the roasted lamb would be served. And they would then take this bread with the roasted lamb and they would dip it into the sauce. Jesus would be passing out this unleavened bread. And this is what was taking place. And so you see them celebrating the Passover. It seems to be at about this time, verse 21, while, as they were eating, Jesus drops a bombshell. Look at verse 21. He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. What? What? You could just see him choking. I mean, this had been like almost a festive event. And now Jesus says, One of you will betray me. Think about it. You sitting at a family meal and someone says something to that effect. You're like... What what is betray you? One of us? I mean one of these tight knit group of disciples have been getting this for three years. They've taken all sorts of heat. They've been with Jesus through the thick and the thin, the miracles and this maniacal oppression by the Pharisees. And Jesus says one of you is going to betray me. And look at their response. Verse twenty two being deeply grieved, they each be, one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord, You've got to give the disciples credit. I'm sure they were shocked by Jesus washing their feet because he was confronting their hard issue. You know, by the way, it's really hard to serve people and wash people's feet when you're trying to make a case for how great you are. Isn't it right? I mean, if you're thinking about how good you are, you know, I got stature, man. I got education. I got money. I got status. I got power. You probably don't find yourself washing people's feet very often, do you? Why? Arrogance has a way of keeping you from holiness. Well, obviously Jesus' point had gotten through, and now they're being rather introspective, and they say, "Well, surely not, I, Lord." They're li- literally—you could see them asking Jesus, "Surely not, Lord, me? Not I, Lord?" Now they would be trying to figure out, like, who would it be? They're actually like, you know, did, did I, did I do something inadvertently? Would, would I, would I do that? Wait, wait, you, who, who could it possibly, is it me? Let me tell you one person they pretty sure wouldn't. it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be Judas. Judas was the most educated of the group. Judas was from the South. Judas had pretty much the trusted position in the group. You gotta, if you're going to trust someone, what, if you trust someone greatly, what are you going to do? Well, you let them have your money, right? And Judas was the treasurer. They were probably thinking, is it me? But who who might it be? There would be hardly anyone. I don't think anyone would have picked Judas. You know, that's pretty remarkable, too, because Jesus knew even from the beginning those who would not believe, and he also knew who would betray him. In fact, he actually even stated that as much. It's stated as such in John chapter 6, that Jesus knew who would betray him, and yet Jesus loved his men equally. He even loved his betrayer equally. Even to the extent that no one would know, there was no like, oh man, it have to be Jesus because I mean it have to be Judas to betraying Jesus, Jesus because Jesus is always like oh Judas you know and never, never. He loved even his enemy. It tells you about the character of Jesus, and obviously, this was a deep, very significant event. Now, why why this betrayal? And verse twenty three. He answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. And they're like, whoa, all of us have done this. This, this betrayal was on the forefront of Jesus' mind. And, you know, I've tried to wonder, why? Why the betrayal? Why not have Jesus just arrested, taken off, carted off? Romans are there. You got Jewish leadership. They're all upset. Why? Why betrayal? And I'll, I'll tell you my answer to that. I believe that Jesus had to experience the fullness of human suffering and the betrayal of a dear and trusted friend was part of a deal. If you've ever been betrayed, flat out divorced, abandoned, left, betrayed by a business partner, loved one, by a parent, you know how hard it hurts. Just imagine Jesus. It was obviously on the forefront of his mind. In John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus quotes this, Psalm 41, verse 9. It's David who wrote a very similar lament because his counselor, Ahithophel, had actually then joined league in Absalom's rebellion. And this is what is written. This is what Jesus quoted. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He's fully aware, knowing that this very one, he cared about who actually he called to follow through his act of betrayal would bring forth the judgment of God and would spend eternity apart from him. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, verse 24, the son of man is to go just as it is written of him exactly the way God had scripted it. Just exactly the way he prophesied in the scriptures. Remember Isaiah chapter 42 through 53, the suffering servant actually talking about the sufferings of Messiah. It's written how he should go. And Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, verse 25, Judas is betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. And when Judas when Jesus says that to him, basically that statement then puts the responsibility back upon the person who's asking. It's pretty fascinating. Do you see what they're saying? Verse 22, "Surely not I, Lord." See that verse 22? Jesus when he's talking with Judas, notice that Judas says, "Surely it is not I, Rabbi." Others call him Lord, Judas calls him Rabbi, which means teacher. There is never one occasion in all of the gospel accounts where Judas ever calls Jesus Lord. It's a charade. He'll call him teacher and he'll give him credit and esteem that way, but not fully submitted yield to him as Lord. Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Well, with that, Judas' mind, it's sealed. Jesus identifies him. He knows from this time on, he's going to be looking for the opportunity and now he's found it. He knows that just in a few hours, Jesus will go as per his pattern to go and pray because he always goes to his Garden of Gethsemane when he's in Jerusalem and that's where he spends time praying. This is where I'm going to hand him over. Even if the Jewish leadership, remember we saw last week, they want to make sure this doesn't happen during the Passover and doesn't happen during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Judas is saying, I've got it. I know the place. Now's the time. Well, that moves then into the significance of communion. From this point on, what is going to happen is this last Passover Seder is becoming the new institution of the new in, new covenant known as the Lord's Supper or communion. Jesus is going to take elements from the Passover Seder and he is now going to put them into what is called the Lord's Supper or communion. This night. Mark, the end of all the ceremonies that had taken place prior to this, because the, when he celebrated the Passover, it actually was just a foreshadowing of a coming reality. This Passover had been sanctioned by God and the old covenant is now going to be fulfilled. It's not going to be replaced. It is going to be. Re- it's going to be fulfilled by Christ himself. And so that is what is going to take place. The feast, the rituals, the priesthood, this whole mosaic economy. All is going to come to full fruition in Jesus. Everything that it pointed to is now fulfilled in Jesus. And so he is going to institute an event, an event that is meant to be celebrated by his people regularly to remember who he is and what he's done. And so then, verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it. This is my body. They would probably be waiting at this point here for this this third cup. The third cup of wine. Because they've been eating roasted lamb and the unleavened bread for some time now. But it's like after this event, Jesus calls out and says, I'm going to be betrayed. He then takes this unleavened bread and he said, this is my body. Do you see that? And he's like, whoa, this is is my body. I want you to take it and eat it. The disciples would be like, wait a second. This, this isn't in the Passover Seder. This, this doesn't happen. What, what is Jesus doing? What, what is he saying? Now, when Jesus does this, and he starts breaking this bread and passing this unleavened bread to his disciples. They are trying to process fully the extent of what the he, what he means by this. Now, one thing for sure that they didn't think is that that he was literally saying, this is my physical body, because he was there right in front of them. In fact, he hadn't even died. But Jesus oftentimes used a figurative language. He said, I'm the door, right? I'm the light. He, he used figurative language. And so they would have understood this. He's, he's speaking of the fact that somehow his body's going to be broken. He's he's telling us and he's he's inviting us. It's very reminiscent of John chapter six, where Jesus said that he's the bread of life. And now he's actually breaking this bread and they're actually eating it with an understanding that Jesus is about to give his body for us. And then and if that wasn't surprising, then this third cup of the Seder, this third cup of wine, it's called the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption. It was the. Cup that reminded them of God's promise in Exodus 6:6 that I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Then Jesus picks up this cup, this third cup of wine. This would be in keeping with a Passover Seder. And then he makes this statement. If that statement about his body wasn't shocking enough, verse 27 would completely floor them. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now Let me just give you a little Jewish history. One thing that Jewish people never did did, is they never drank or ate blood. It was something that God had given their law. They found it absolutely abhorrent. And yet now Jesus is taking this cup and saying this cup, this cup, he says, is my blood. Notice what he says here. I want you to drink, drink from it, all of you. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Let me tell you what's going on here. When there was a covenant that was established. There was oftentimes a sacrifice and there was there was blood that was shed. For instance, they would know from their culture that if two neighbors were going to make a covenant, what they would do is they would actually kill like a calf or a lamb. They'd set it on the ground on two and then there'd be a walkway and they'd both walk through it together. And they did that to signify that if either one of us ever broke this covenant, we ought to be hacked up to pieces like this, split in two. It was a covenant. It was that serious. And God does the same thing. You find this all the way back here. Remember, in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham, I am going to bless you. You don't see it, but I'm going to bless you. And then remember, he had those animals that Abraham had actually sacrificed, put in rows, and God himself passed through. He says, I'm going to keep this covenant. You can count on me. I will give you land, a nation, and a blessing. When the Mosaic covenant was established, they had oxen killed and they had blood from that oxen. All of this, that is how covenants were ratified. But when Jesus says, this is my blood, he's not only ratifying the new covenant established like in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, but Jesus is also going to be their redeemer. He is ratifying the covenant, but blood must be shed for the remission of sins. The blood of bulls and goats never could satisfy God's wrath. You had to be a man and you had to be perfect and you had to be God and he's it. And so he's saying this because he never wants them to get the idea when they see him in just a few hours and he's whipped, beaten and bloody when he is pierced through and he's bleeding. He never wants them to think Jesus is just some sort of victim of some sort of Passover plot. He willingly gives himself to redeem his people From their sins, to atone for their sins through the payment of Himself. And so when we see this taking place, what Jesus is establishing is the new covenant. Like Jeremiah 31 spoke of, a new covenant where He will write His law on your hearts that He will be your God and you and I will be His people. And He says, and He will remember their sins no more. There will be a once for all sacrifice, it'll never be repeated. It fully satisfies the wrath of God because he takes it all upon himself. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this. And this cup symbolizes this. Well, now the disciples are taking this all in. And then Jesus makes this statement. He actually breaks the Seder practice because he doesn't take the fourth cup of wine. But he says, verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this. Of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He gives them a promise. He says, I will not drink the fruit of this vine until I drink it anew in my father's kingdom. And I will be with you. He gives them a promise. I'm going to be with you. We are going to have a fulfillment of this. But Jesus makes another break from the whole sacred practice. And says, I'm changing everything. I'm the one. It would be at this point, like it says in verse 30, that they would finish singing the Hallel Psalms. Verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so they would sing these hymns, these psalms. The very final one they sing is Psalm 18. And you know, the final words that Jesus sings... Before his persecution, his crucifixion, his death. He would sing this from Psalm 118, verse 29. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And in just a few hours, he would demonstrate that. This. Communion practice, this Lord's Supper, just as Jesus had instituted. Now, this began the practice of the early church. In fact, you find it in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two. The early church very simple, very focused, very united. This is what they did: they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were always studying and having the word taught to them. Second thing, they were they were committed to fellowship actually uniting, coming together, talking, encouraging one another, expressing the one another's in each other's lives. And then to the breaking of bread. That is what they referred to as this communion celebration and to prayer. That's what they were all about. That is the New Testament church. Now, when we come to a passage like this, you're like, whoa. Whew, what's what is what does all that mean? And sure enough, guess what? In Christendom, there are different views on this. And I want you to know, I want you to be educated. I also want you to come to a place where you land. Okay. let me give you the various views. Okay. this Lord's Supper is is practiced in all Christian traditions. Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican and some Reformed traditions see this as a sacrament. And this is a means of God conveying grace. So, for instance, in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, This is called transubstantiation, where they literally believe that the bread and the wine actually become the blood and the body of Christ. Literally, through the actions of the priest, and as he is then consecrating the bread and the wine, it is actually changed literally to the blood and the body of Jesus. Okay, that's called transubstantiation. Then there is consubstantiation. So, These other traditions that I'd mentioned, they actually view that the body and blood of Christ are present in, get all these prepositions, with and under the bread and wine. Okay, this is called consubstantiation. Okay, so many Lutherans, some reform practices, they see that and they also see it as a means of grace. So when Luther was trying to explain this, because remember, Luther came out of Catholicism. He was a Catholic priest. Okay, he actually wanted to reform Catholicism. He didn't necessarily want to break from it. It just kind of almost was forced upon him. So he then said, well, it's not transubstantiation. So they have consubstantiation. And he said it was kind of like the equivalent of taking iron and putting into a fire and it's going to get heated up. And yet it's still iron. And so that is what consubstantiation. It's not a literal change, but it's pretty much everything else around it and in it. And yet it's not fundamentally changed. And then there is uh, the many in the Christian tradition, those who see it as symbolic, that Christ's body and blood um, are symbolic and representative to witness to Christ. Okay, so I'm going to just tell you where I land. I'm going to just tell you four reasons why I actually think that this bread and the cup are symbolic. Okay, And you need to make your own decision. You make it on the basis of the word. But let me just tell you why I land where I do on the symbolic track. First of all, the Passover was a memorial meal, okay? Right? And communion was meant to be a memorial meal in this same sort of symbolic tradition. Let me give you another one. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, after this event, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. You see that? Matthew 26, verse 29. he refers to it as the fruit of the vine. OK, uh, and he says, I'm not going to drink this again. He doesn't refer to it as his blood. If that's really what Jesus intended, he would have said that. But he actually calls it the fruit of the vine. OK, and so I really think Jesus was speaking the fact this was representative, just like when he'd say I'm the door. OK, he is saying he's saying that his blood and his body are being represented. That'd be very keeping in like a Passover tradition. Very keeping with Jesus and the many parables that he gave. Let me give you another one. Jesus often used figurative language. That that is, that is very common. I think we get in trouble when we try to force something literal when the natural normal sense is to take things figuratively. You and I speak like that. So did Jesus. And then let me give you the final reason. The New Testament stresses remembrance. Even Luke, when he records this, he records Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. And the practice of the early church, like when you look at when the institution is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what does it say? Continually do this in remembrance of me. They understood Jesus to say that, and that is how it was practiced. That's why I land there. I'll just give that to you for your own consideration. But let me just tell you, communion is at the heart of our union with Christ. So let me just review and give you a little summary of communion. Communion pictures God's sovereign faithfulness. Communion portrays our individual and our corporate identity with Christ. It, it portrays it. It shows that you and I are united with Christ and we're united with fellow believers. It also points out our need for the Savior and the, and the atonement he accomplished. Remember what he said? This cup is being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You and I are sinners. And even though we are saved by grace, we are still sinners. We still absolutely need, need Christ. It is when we come into communion that we once again celebrate the fact that we are unconditionally loved and Jesus has paid it all. Let me tell you something else it does. Communion prompts our hearts to pure devotion and worship. When we come together in communion, like we will in just a few minutes, it is meant to elicit worship and devotion. When the the word remember, we often think like remember, like just recalling some facts, like I just got to pass the test, just got to remember these things. In the Jewish mind, to remember something was to live like in the event again in your mind, to experience as much as possible through your senses, in your head, in your emotions, to vividly recall it. And that is what we do. We vividly recall Jesus dying on our behalf. In our time of worship and devotion, we confess our sin. If there is some sort of problem or, an, or animosity or issue that we've sinned against another, we resolve it. Why? Because we're united with Christ at the time of introspection, resolution. And then finally, communion promises our future joy in Christ's kingdom. Communion in a suspense is meant to take us deeper. I think um, many of you know, if you looked at today's newspaper front page, you probably heard about it in the news. That Neil Armstrong passed away yesterday. Remember him? First man on the moon. His words, long as there's history books, these will be remembered. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Remember, as he made his way July 20th, 1969, he stepped foot on the moon. We all remember that. We also remember Buzz Aldrin. He was the actual uh, lunar module pilot. But what is not commonly known is what took place when that lunar module finally, for the very first time, with two of our men, our astronauts, on that, in that module, what took place right after the landing? What took place as Aldrin began a radio transmission to the Houston Space Center? And this is what he said, quote, This is the LM pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, and mind you, this is being broadcast around the world. Whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. And at this point, NASA decided to, to black out the broadcast communication for a period of time, for about one minute and 30 seconds. For they knew what Buzz Aldrin was about to do. You know what he did? He took out of his pocket the elements for communion, and he took out bread, a little piece of unleavened bread, a little bit of wine. And this is what he said from the lunar module. He read from handwritten scripture. He wrote out John fifteen five on a card. In fact, you can see that. There it is, a picture of that card. He read this. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And then he took communion. You see, let us remember, apart from Jesus, you and I, we're nothing. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. He is our life and he is our Lord. He is not an addendum to our agenda. He is life itself. And we remember him and his sacrifice. When we celebrate communion. for so that's where we find victory in life. Joy, meaning, purpose. The reality that heaven is ours. Forgiveness is ours because Christ has done it. We overcome our sin, our lust, our propensity to anger because we have Jesus. And so he you ask, do you really think that God really loves you? Does he? What more could he do for you? You see, communion is at the heart of our union with Christ. And what we're going to do is share in communion together. So I, as I pray, I'm going to ask the men if they would come forward. And we're going to once again celebrate Jesus crucified on our behalf. Lord, we come before you and we are in awe of our Savior. To think of the events surrounding this particular event, the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, this first communion. What is portrayed? What is represented? What Jesus has gone through on our behalf. He took the penalty of our sin in his body and he bore it all. He paid for it all. Experienced your divine wrath so that we might be justified by faith declared righteous, experience forgiveness, and live forever with you in the presence of Jesus who's been crucified on our behalf. We're in awe. So, Lord, is there someone here who's never placed their faith in your son, would they simply pray with me and say, Lord, I understand. And I turn from my sin and my self-centeredness and I trust Jesus, Savior, and Lord. The Passover lamb. Lord, may we never take communion lightly. May we realize the great significance of him who has died on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Now, as the men pass out the elements, let me tell you, you don't have to be a member of Fellowship Bible Church to partake in communion. But you do truly have to know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. In fact, the Bible warns, don't ever take this lightly. And so we're going to have the men pass out the elements in just a few minutes. We're going to share in this together. Use this as a time to draw near to God, to confess your sin, and to celebrate the fact you're forgiven eternally because of Jesus. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, what an outstanding time of just the worship of you to pray, to sing, to have the word opened, and for us to just read from the scriptures and see the significance of this communion and union with you. Lord, we love you. Strengthen us, empower us. Fill us with the joy and faith that comes from just abiding in Jesus. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name.